Hello everyone and um, welcome to the Old India Institute and welcome to the Oxford Martin School. Here in the Oxford Martin School, we support projects across the university addressing some of the major challenges of the 21st century. And um, we do talks and uh, hear about projects across uh, all fields of research, but my background is a biologist and it's a huge pleasure to have one of the legends of contemporary biology with us this afternoon, uh, Dr. Lee Roy Hood, Dr. Lee Hood. Um, Lee has had a career in many places, but especially Caltech, University of Washington, the Institute of Systems Biology, which he set up, and most recently as CEO of Phenome Health, which we're going to hear, hear about in his talk. Um, Lee has done major fundamental research in a number of areas of biology, in particular immunology, and is also responsible for inventing some of the machines that have powered modern biology, protein and DNA uh, sequences and machines that synthesize macromolecules as well. And not only an academic scientist, he's set up uh, a number of very major companies, Applied Biosystems is, is one of them. Um, Lee, I think you're sometimes referred to as the father of systems biology, the study of networks of networks within biology. And I think you actually coined the term uh, 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 yourself. If I was to tell you how many prizes Lee has, there would be no time to actually hear Lee talk. So I'll mention the Alaska Prize, the Kyoto Prize, and the uh, National Medal of Science, which was presented to Lee a few years back by President Obama. Now, in a moment, Lee is going to give his talk, P4 Healthcare and Precision Population Health, a Transformation of Healthcare. But before that, uh, a colleague of Lee's, uh, Dr. Robert Kilpatrick, who works at Phenome Health and uh, is in charge of communications and strategy, is going to introduce a short film. So, Robert, if you'd like to do that, then we'll pass straight over to Lee. It is such a delight to, to be here today. Um, we are in the midst of, of creating a full-length documentary film, about 90 minutes long, and it's called The Phenomic Age, A Quest for Wellness. And it looks at 5,000 years of all cultures in the world as they have quested to understand longevity, prime of life, youth, and all of that. And then in 1953, we suddenly have DNA and a door opens and there's a new path that begins the quest for the science of wellness that allows Lee to work with many others to create the Human Genome Project and now the Beyond the Human Genome Project. So we're gonna show you a two minute trailer. Its purpose is to stimulate a global conversation about wellness and its place in the world. And our creative director, Maurizio Zigola, and his team from Milan, Italy, are back here. They're filming something today. And as you leave, if you want to chat to him, he has a lovely white Italian scarf on. So I'm done. Enjoy the show. Imagination is moving beyond the normal boundaries of thought. It is 
exploring areas that haven't been explored before. The advances in science, from my point of view, come through new ideas and new approaches and new strategies and new thoughts about how to think about the real world. What you can imagine, you can realize. We see this as the largest change in medicine ever, a shift from a disease orientation to a wellness orientation. The new personalized medicine we envision will democratize healthcare for every individual in the world, a social impact beyond our wildest imaginations. Right. So I'd like to talk about uh, a new nonprofit organization called Phenome Health that's uh, driving, in a sense, the second genome project, which we've labeled uh, as beyond the human genome. And I think the key point about this is it's a challenge for science, for technology, and for society in striking ways. And we need to bring that kind of cross-disciplinary diversity and power together uh, to make it become real. What I'd, I'd like to do is tell you a little bit about my career because it frames how I think about wellness. And when I went to Caltech in 1970 as an assistant professor, I uh, debated about the directions my lab should go and chose two. One was molecular immunology, in which I was well established at that point in time. But the second was to develop new kinds of technologies. My, my PhD advisor, Bill Dreyer at Caltech, had told me, you should always practice biology at the leading edge. It's more fun there. But he also said, if you want to fundamentally change a discipline, invent a new technology that lets you visualize things you've never seen before. And th that, was, uh, that was very much uh, the focus of my interest in human complexity and trying to understand it. And I remember thinking at the time about the analogy of the uh, elephants and six blind men, each feeling a different part of the elephant and declaring it was a spear or a fan or a stump. And, and of course, what was interesting about that 
is they only looked at the outside of the elephant and they only looked at a single part of the elephant. And when I started thinking about it, that in the complex, in the context of human complexity, three ideas emerged. Now I'm going to phrase them in a more modern fashion now than I did at the time, but I did have these three uh, ideas at that time. And of course the first was big data. I was convinced that complexity, one of the first steps you had to take in dealing with it is to generate an enormous amount of, comp uh, of data. And in time that came to be genome data and phenome analyses, and we'll talk about that in, in some detail. The, the second in looking at the elephant analogy is you only looked at the outside of the elephant. What was happening at all the organs on the inside? And that's where I clearly had this idea. Blood was a window into health and disease because it bathed all organs and they released molecules into the blood that if you could read them, you could infer back the uh, state of internal organs and so forth. And I'm not gonna talk about it today, but we developed a technique whereby we could identify organ specific blood proteins and use those as the proxies for looking at the brain or the liver or the heart or the kidney. And they're very powerful in allowing you to see changes in state of those organisms across time in a human being. And of course, the, the final point was, if you took the external data of a human, which uh, we can see easily from the outside and combined it with the internal data that could come from blood, you needed to be able to integrate and combine that Oops, we didn't want to do that. Combine that together. And that was really the beginning, starting in, in a somewhat inchoate way to think about uh, systems uh, thinking that it's, we know now that you need to take a global, holistic, uh, and integrative view of complexity of organ uh, organisms and so forth. And I remember reading in 19... 73, a book that really impacted me, and that was a structure of scientific revolution by Thomas Kuhn. And he talked about paradigm changes in physics. And, 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 and really, if you strip down the essence of what he had to say, it was one, thinking about paradigm changes really requires thinking outside the box. And he made the interesting observation that our educational systems are absolutely abysmal at training people to think outside the box. So it's a really interesting question. How do we do that? I think there are very good ways of doing it. But the second thing he pointed out that even if you could validate your paradigm change unequivocally, getting people to change their behavior is really hard because most of us are embedded in our past education and its view of our world and its view of how we should operate. And 
as you get older, it becomes more and more difficult to imagine change and so forth. So my feeling and having, as you'll see in a moment, participated in a number of uh, different paradigm changes is, is the key to getting them accepted as one, unequivocally validating that the paradigm change is real, but two, focusing on younger people who are much more open to thinking about change. I mean, it's really hard to re-educate old scientists quite often. So uh, then, as I said, I have either led and or participated uh, seven different paradigm changes. And I tell you about these both because each really dealt with complexity in interesting ways, but it framed how I think about healthcare and what we should be doing in the future. And that'll give you a context for what uh, I talked about. So the first was we really brought engineering to biology uh, at Caltech. And what was enormously interesting about that is biology at Caltech hated the fact that I was doing engineering and biology because it defiled the purity of classic biology. And some of the older faculty argued I should be moved to engineering, which the uh, chair never did, fortunately, uh, for lots of reasons. But we developed instruments, you heard. And, and the instruments really, as you'll see in just a moment, enabled us to do really remarkable kinds of things. And, let me take just a moment and talk about this paradigm change because it actually is really interesting in a lot of ways. So we developed automated uh, sequencing uh, of uh, DNA and proteins and everybody knows the DNA sequencer really revolutionized things. At that time, the protein sequencer, which was 200 times more sensitive than any other instrument, revolutionized things because you could sequence vanishingly small amounts of interesting proteins like erythropoietin. And with the other instrument, let me make, before I go to that, one more point. I always felt any real instrument that you developed, you ought to commercialize. And I started three different companies along the way that commercialized the six instruments that you see here. All of these things are successful today. And in fact, uh, the automated uh, inkjet technology synthesizer is what Agilent uh, still uses today and everything. But what was interesting about the first instruments is they were an interesting integrated system. And, and what that meant is if we sequenced a vanishingly small amount of uh, erythropoietin, we could translate that protein sequence into generate DNA sequence, and we could use that to clone the gene. Then we could analyze the gene with a DNA sequencer and even make antibodies against it with the peptide synthesizer. But this allowed us to open up a whole series of new fields. For example, we sequenced uh, erythropoietin with Amgen, a company I was a co-founder of, and it became the first billion dollar product in 
in uh, modern biotechnology. And it was very much against the classic drug view of the only good drugs are little molecules. And for a lot of reasons, little molecules are terrible drugs. And we can talk about that point if we wanted. But the other point I would say is it really made me think about the roles of academia and industry and what, what the relative roles are. So what academia is about is conceptualization and proof of principle. That's because it doesn't cost very much money. What industry is about is making instruments robo, ro robust and then uh, scaling them up. And these are all rough estimates on what it costs to do the DNA sequencer. And of course, uh, that whole process starts all over again with second generation DNA sequencing and actually third single molecule DNA sequencing, which came out of Oxford here, uh, many real ways and everything. And, and so what was the second paradigm change? Well, the automated DNA sequencer got me invited to the first meeting ever held on the genome project in the spring of 1985 where 12 of us were invited by uh, Bob Sinsheimer to come and pass judgment on the genome project. And, and we did, and, and, and two interesting things came out of it. One, admittedly difficult, we were convinced it was going to be possible to do, especially with the automated sequencer, even of its early prototype form and everything. But two, we were split 50 to 50 on whether it was a good idea. And those against it were against it primarily because this was viewed as big science, which would take money from small science, which is what biology was all about that time. And I remember going out into the community in 86 and 87 and seeing that 80% that of the biologists were absolutely opposed. And in fact, NIH was opposed up until the very end and their arguments were, we don't need the genome project because we spend $300 million a year on genomics, but it was really genetics. And of course, there is a slight difference between genomics and genetics, which the NIH bureaucrats didn't really understand. What, from my point of view, the complete genome sequence gave us was access to human variability and the capacity to compare it with wellness phenotypes and disease phenotypes. And we'll return to that later. What happened at Caltech, and again, the professors utterly hated this, is my lab got very big because I brought in all the different kind of cross-disciplinary people you needed to develop these technologies. And I realized that this probably wasn't healthy. So I argued to biology at Caltech, look, let me start an applied department where I'm going to recruit faculty who can represent all of these disciplines. That's the logical way to do it. And, and, and the engineers and the chemists love the idea that physicists were utterly indifferent and the biologists categorically opposed it for reasons that are obvious, I think. But Bill Gates actually enabled me to move in 1992 to the University of Washington and set up the first cross-disciplinary department. And it was spectacularly successful in the eight years of its uh, existence. Uh, Phil Green developed the two major 
algorithms for the human genome project, the ability to assemble fragments and the ability to assess the quality of DNA sequence. And Rudy Abersall and John Yates pioneered proteomics. They developed the first two critical techniques, one computational and one chemical, that really fueled this whole new discipline. We invented the uh, inkjet uh, technology there and so forth. But I really wanted to build on top of that cross-disciplinary department systems biology. But I, I learned my first big lesson then about dealing with big bureaucracies, because at Caltech, you don't have any big bureaucracies. So, and that was, <clears throat> there were a hundred ways I was blocked from setting up a really effective systems biology approach. For example, when I talked to the head of computing about my needs for for computation for systems biology in the future, he came down and showed me this really small janitor's room and he said, that's all the computing space you'll ever need for anything you're going to do as a biologist. And I decided that and for 10 other reasons that uh, I resigned in 2000 and started the Institute for Systems Biology. And, we took these global and holistic approaches to things. And, you know, systems biology really underlies a lot of uh, what we look at today in biology. But systems biology is very much big data and generating a lot of information, but it's then converting it into biological networks, which are the physiologic framework and the underpinning of a lot of biology. And then, it's looking at the dynamics of these systems. So you can come to understand them in some detail. But early in 2000, we looked at, I looked at, at medicine and healthcare and decided that what was key in the future for healthcare were the four Ps, predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. And we'll talk about all of those in more detail in just a moment. But what healthcare was really all about were two things, wellness and disease. And in 2000, let me tell you, nobody in medicine thought about wellness in any way. And frankly, that's still true to a large extent uh, today. And it, so I started thinking about a lot of technologies and strategies we could use for beginning to study wellness. And I must say, I had enormous lack of success in sending these things to NIH, and they gave the most pathetic excuses as to why this wouldn't work. So, you know, if the bureaucracy won't give the money, you have to go figure out how to do it. So I decided what I do is go to small countries and say, look, I'll help you get started with systems biology if you'll give me the money to invent the tools I need for P4 medicine. So the first four countries I went to, we won't talk about, I failed in all cases. In fact, the chair of my board said to me, Lee, don't you ever learn you failed four times in a row? He said, this fifth one you're proposing to me is ridiculous. He said, if you succeed, I'll believe in the tooth fairy. <laughs> and I went to Luxembourg and we persuaded them to put in 20 million a year 
for five years, and that really revolutionized what we do in technology and computation, really set us up then uh, for thinking about wellness, which we really started in 2013 or so. And again, I remember going to Francis Collins in 2013 and saying, look, I wanted to start a pilot project of 100 people and to use very dense data and analyze the phenomics as well as the genomics and come to understand wellness better. Francis gave me this very sanctimonious, Lee NIH is only interested in disease. We will never support wellness. So uh, again, I went back and raised the money to do that small project from philanthropy. And that enabled us then to start a company called Aravel which over four years allowed us to recruit 5,000 individuals and for each generate longitudinal data clouds that have really been transformational in understanding human biology. And I'll give you some indications of what that's all about. So what happened in, in 2016, the CEO of uh, Providence, a large healthcare system, 51 hospitals and in seven different states came to me and said, look, we'd like to uh, make you our chief scientist officer. And I thought, what a terrific opportunity. And as it evolved, and I started thinking about this new position I had, I decided the best thing I could do was push a project that was um, 200 times larger than the original 5,000 person project, namely argue we should look at the genomes and phenomes of a million people. And that is the project we call Beyond the Human Genome Project. And uh, I will say what I learned at Providence is that healthcare systems can even be more conservative than bureaucratic state systems. But that's another interesting story. And, that, in fact, is why I resigned recently and started this company called Phenome Health. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, now. So what did I learn from these things? It was a fascinating experience going through those. It really changed how we thought about biology and medicine, each of those paradigm changes. Each of them was met with enormous skepticism. The next thing is by far the most important thing. Every single one of those paradigm changes required a new organization to emerge from. Truly innovative ideas rarely emerge from old organizations. And quite frankly, academia has major problems in this regard. Now, there are ways to do it, but most people uh, don't think about those ways. Um, you need to be able to uh, continue, although many of your colleagues are laughing at you. And of course, how do you really prove a paradigm change? Well, first it's demonstrated success and then re-educate people. And those are, those are all challenges, but those are things that you need. So 21st century medicine, the four Ps, uh, and the fact that uh, they represent two domains need to be seamlessly integrated together to give you 
the, the, uh, the essence of what P4 medicine is. And in fact, the first three Ps are all science. And I'll say to a first approximation, we know how to do those pretty well, and the future is, is uh, pretty extrapolatable. The fourth P is all about psychology and sociology and education. And here's a P that we'd love to see if Oxford Martin couldn't help us with in various ways and so forth. And in a sense, we're talking about uh, deep medicine here uh, at its uh, natural stage and extent. So the fourth P, it's about the players that are in the healthcare system, the patients, the physicians, the healthcare leaders, the regulators, the academic and industrial members of this healthcare constituency. And for each of them, you have to take different approaches. And how do you, how do you solve the problems? Well, for the majority of them, I think the major way you solve the problem is one, prove you can really increase the quality of healthcare, and two, show them that you're going to save them a boatload of money in costs. And we can do both of those across the 10-year period that I'm proposing. How do we go to the various classes and minorities and uh, the anti-science and anti-vax people and persuade them to participate in the number of in healthcare and, and later to underdeveloped countries. I mean, this represents a whole series of challenges and you need different approaches for each of these kind of things. It would be great to have a discussion on that. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later. And, and I think it's going to be this data-driven wellness that are really going to allow us to tackle what I call the five fundamental problems of contemporary medicine. So it's quality, it's the aging population, it's the explosion of chronic diseases, it's cost, and it's diversity and equity. And I think we have really superb solutions for all of those. And you'll come to understand at least some of them. And we would really like to I mean, if we're not able to move medicine from you pay doctors according to how many patients they touch to a value-based motivation that argues you have to keep populations healthy, we'll never succeed with this endeavor. And that is one of the major objectives of this whole program in the future. So, you know, we're going to change the world in ways we can only begin to imagine because it, it really has the potential for democratizing healthcare for the world if we can solve this P4 challenge. And it is uh, absolutely an enormous one. So uh, on to beyond the human genome project. So the first genome project took 13 years to do one genome. What we propose to do in 10 years is a million uh, genome sequences plus their longitudinal phenomes, and we'll define that in a few moments. And of course, what we want to do with these data are convert them into actionable possibilities that if acted upon by the relevant individual will allow them to improve wellness 
and or avoid disease. And in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about how we define these actionable possibilities. Um, I will say for actionable possibilities, we came up with about 200 of them in the Aerofail program for 5,000 people. I think we'll come up with more than 10,000 in this larger program, and we're going to need AI to deliver them to physicians because they will not be able to understand the complications, and you'll, you'll understand why in a moment. So we are proposing to the federal government, I have proposed, that we do this project for 10 billion over 10 years. And uh, we're negotiating now. And we have short term projects that will let us get started immediately. And uh, I'll tell you about that. But what we've done at Phenome Health is we've assembled the key partners we need to really carry out this kind of program with other partners that we will continue to add as we go on. And of course, what moves us beyond the Human Genome Project is longitudinal phenomics, which will define now the genome, more or less uh, invariant across your life, apart from cancer and a, and a few rare mutations. And of course, the phenome is essentially the convergence of your genome, your behavior, and your environment. And they impact your life at every instance, all the way across your transition from infancy uh, all the way up to, to uh, your final adulthood and everything. And we can analyze these phenomics in hundreds of different ways, but what we found quite successful is to measure blood analytes, to measure the microbiome, to use digital health kinds of mechanisms and other things that we'll talk about a little bit uh, later on. So with the human genome and uh, a single genome prototype for getting started, and now we want to do a million and be able to sample them uh, across their, the transitions that occur naturally in life, transitions in normal development and transitions from wellness to disease. And the phenome marks those transitions uh, absolutely beautifully. So what is the essence of what we're really talking about here then is that we have the ability to follow your health trajectory in a data-rich manner and then to use the data we generate to optimize that health trajectory. And what do we mean exactly by a health trajectory? Well, that's your, uh, your, your lifetime of health. And I would say health has three very separate divisions. Wellness, it has transitions to disease, and it has disease and progression. And we'll see that we can increase the dimensionality for everyone of their wellness, as well as extend its length. We can now identify biomarkers that mark the earliest stage of transitions to chronic diseases and use those in the future with appropriate partners to reverse the disease before it ever manifests itself as a disease phenotype. And we will show you some really interesting approaches for precision medicine we can use to deal with disease itself. 
So in the future, what we'd like to do is reverse your transitions as they come up and keep you in a perpetual state of wellness with the idea that you could move into your 90s or even uh, hundreds, mentally agile, physically capable. And uh, the really interesting question, which we're gonna return to later, is if you get 30 extra years of functional life, what are you gonna do with it? That's a deep question that's very interesting. We think this will be the largest paradigm shift in the history of uh, medicine. We have two proof of principles, Aravail, that I've described, and I'll talk about some of the conclusions we can draw from those data. And we have a new partner going forward called POSIT, which <coughs> deals in a digital manner with brain health. They have digital measurements that can assess 25 different cognitive features and they can fill in cognitive deficiencies beautifully, again, with digital kind of training and so forth. And I'll say only a little bit about that, but I wanna point out they've carried out 250 clinical trials and uh, more than 10,000 patients. So the evidence and the data are really quite compelling that this is really essential for brain health. And I'll ask you, how many physicians have ever asked you how your brain is? Physicians utterly ignore brain health. And the brain health is every bit as important as the body health and really keeping you functional, obviously. So in, in Airville, we did complete genome analysis. We looked at three different types of blood analytes twice a year almost a little more than a thousand of those proteins, metabolites, and clinical chemistries. We did the gut microbiome twice a year, and we used Fitbits and other measurement devices for physiology. And these data for each individual uh, could be analyzed in terms of these actionable possibilities. And I'll show you exactly how we did that in, in, uh, in just a second. So um, the science of uh, wellness and prevention is what we really want to push. That's what we've learned from these 5,000 different data clouds and so forth. And this is actually an analysis, and, and I do it in the 108-person project because it's simpler to illustrate than the 5,000-personal project. But basically, we were able to take six, six different data types and ask for each data bit within a type what statistical associations they had with data bits from the other five types. And we were able to identify essentially 3,500 of these correlations. And then what we did is manually look through and took the most interesting correlations and went to the literature. And from that, we could validate actionable possibilities that came from tying together these two different points of information. And an example of that is I was in the first program, my vitamin D level was microscopically low. Uh, so my, my wellness coach said, oh, start taking a thousand international units of vitamin D and it'll come back very nicely. 
didn't touch it. And then we looked at my genome carefully, and it turned out I had two variants in genes that led to blocking the uptake of vitamin D. So I had to have mega doses of vitamin D to elevate me up to normal levels and then quite large doses to maintain me there. So that was an actionable possibility that without the data, you would never ever have figured out. And we had 200 of those. It's integrating different types of data that really let you come up with different actionable possibilities. And we call that quantitative wellness or uh, scientific wellness. Second thing we could do is because we had individuals that ranged from 21 to 93, we could bend them into 10-year categories. And, and what we showed is in almost a linear way, as you aged, the envelope of control you had for the three classes of analytes came broader and broader and broader. And we could use that information to develop an algorithm, and this is all published, but it was an algorithm that allowed one to determine one's biological age, the age your body says you are as opposed to the birthday. So the lower your biological age is relative to your chronologic age, the more healthy you're aging. And what we demonstrated in Airvale for those individuals that stayed the course is for every year they were in this program, they lost a year of biological age if you're a man and a year and a half if you're a woman. So this is a metric for wellness that we're going to use in all subsequent forward uh, going tests. And uh, we had 40 different kinds of diseases in this uh, population, uh, the most serious of which was diabetes. And if the for the 250 people that had diabetes that we looked at, their average biological age was six years older than their chronologic age. We looked at one COVID-19 patient in the very severe group, and he was 20 years older than his uh, a chronologic age. And unfortunately, he died, so we didn't go back and get the rest of the data. But it's a metric for uh, wellness there. So those are all about the science of wellness. And now we'll talk about the science of prevention because we had whole genome sequence. We could take uh, polygenic scores and convert them into genetic risk for the 5,000 people and then bend them from very low to very high in uh, three categories in between. And the first one we looked at was uh, a, a risk for LDL cholesterol. And what you see in orange there is the level of cholesterol in people that weren't taking statins or other equivalent chemistries. And it goes up in a beautifully linear kind of fashion. And what we were able to demonstrate very effectively is if you had a high genetic risk for LDL cholesterol, a proxy for heart disease, you could only bring it down with statins. If you had a low genetic risk and high cholesterol, diet and exercise worked beautifully. And the important point is for all of these polygenic scores, we're gonna treat low risk and high risk people differently in the future as we come to learn exactly what these mean. And we'll watch the high risk people very carefully 
to identify their earliest transition state and try and reverse it before it becomes clinically manifest. And, and the final point I'll make about these data was what was absolutely fascinating is we saw 167 individuals that transferred from wellness to a diagnosable disease. We took 10 of these that diagnosed various kinds of cancer, and we looked at blood samples drawn prior to the diagnosis, and we asked for each blood sample, were there any of the protein analytes that were out of alignment with the average concentration of proteins in normal individuals at that point in time, that blood draw on time, we had all of that data. And for all 10, we saw a multiplicity of proteins and more than half the proteins gave us deep insights into what the nature of the cancer was. And what we hope to be able to do is to use those early transition biomarkers in collaboration with pharma and academics to reverse the disease at that point. And it's, it's a real hope for being able to deal with chronic disease uh, in, in the future. With the million person project over 10 years, we estimate we'll have 250,000 transitions and that will give us incredibly powerful statistics for being able to pinpoint precisely what type of transition we're looking at. And a final point, we just submitted a paper on something we call uh, a metric for metabolic BMI. So as you know, traditional BMI is, is height and weight kind of measurement thing, but you can do the same thing with metabolites, but the metabolite BMI is better in two ways. One, if you're a really muscular athlete, you're almost always classified by traditional BMI as obese or enormously obese. And it's just a lot of muscle. This distinguishes muscle from fat beautifully. And the other thing is it's very much more sensitive to metabolic changes, diet, exercise and things like that. So that's going to be another metric we'll be following in all patients uh, in the future. So th there are really two kinds of wellness, right? One is the classic wellness that you all know about uh, exercise and diet, sleep and stress management and so forth. And there are a, a gazillion kind of companies that are using these in various ways. The second type of wellness is this data-driven wellness where from either the genome or the phenome or the integration of different data types, we can get new kinds of actionable possibilities. And what is critically important is the data-driven wellness give us deep insights into how to optimize classical wellness. And there's a company out there called Zoe that shows this beautifully with the gut microbiome and uh, health with regard to diabetes and things like that. But so these things together are going to be enormously powerful in the future, and we will integrate those all together into a coherent fashion. And of course, the brain health, the ability to do these 40 measurements that look at 25 different cognitive features. 10 minutes left? Wow. I think I need another hour. 
Um, anyway, uh, we can look at many different cognitive features and uh, the um, what Michael Merzenich, who invented all of this, demonstrated beautifully is for ordinary adults, you rise to a cognitive maximum in the mid 30s and you fade away and die. He took a thousand 80 year olds and sewed with appropriate training, you could convert them back to what they should have been in their mid 35s. So it means there's a lot of hope for all of you who are starting to forget things that uh, these things can be reversed. The gut microbiome has done many things, uh, one of which is we've shown beautifully recently, the gut microbiome has enormous effects on what statins do to you, both with regard to what we want them to do, bringing LDL cholesterol down, but they also can impact major side effects like type two diabetes. So you need to know what your gut microbiome is relative to statins. And we think it's going to be true for many different drugs. And I'm not gonna show you this all, I'm gonna skip by. The, the microbiome has some very interesting things to say about aging. So what about phenome health? We've put together seven partners and I'll just talk about the first major partner that's Guardian Research Network, which, which is an organization that interfaces now with about 140 hospitals, 30 million patients. All of them have been consented for programs like this they've learned to extract electronic health records, both structured and unstructured doctor's notes and things like that. So that is immediately accessible to us and they lie across major minority populations. So we can recruit the kind of diversity we want. Uh, Technicity has let us build an incredible multi-omic platform that does a lot of the other kind of things we need here. We've talked with NIH, DOE, and the VA. They think both were different and interesting to collaborate. We have a great advisory board. I've talked to Congress and got a really terrific reception. And we've uh, introduced a healthcare system to join us where we're going to take the science of wellness and prevention to their family practitioners to get started in this whole endeavor. Jeff Wilkie was number two at Amazon, an incredible guy. He's going to lead the board that we have now. Roger Prometer, number two at uh, at uh, Merck, and uh, he's a student of mine and a very good friend. Victor Zhao is head of the National Academy of Medicine, and all the rest of these are very distinguished people. We've gathered together for Phenom Health, really a terrific team, one of the best over the years that I've actually worked with and everything. And where do we stand now in implementing this? I won't go into all the details now, but let me say we're going to increase by more than order of magnitude the amount of data we're going to be generating. And this is really going to be transformational, bringing in brain health, bringing in electronic health records, and bringing in uh, social determinants of health and patient outcomes and being able to integrate them. And we've set up with our partners these various aspects that can be controlled by this core uh, database system and so forth to generate 
all sorts of new kinds of things. The way we're really going to function in the near future, because getting the big program going is going to take another year or two due to a war and other kinds of things. So we're using precision population health to attack the major health diseases in terms of costs. And diabetes is one that we're starting with. We're, we're actually doing a complete detailed analysis of pregnancy. We'll learn more about it than ever has been learned before. And the power of 60,000 electronic health records for making deductions about pregnancy and vaccination and unvaccination is unbelievable. And the most interesting new fact is if you got booster shots as a woman, that significantly improves your chance for better outcomes for you as a woman and your infant. So boosters, at least in some cases, are really worthwhile. Moderna is much better than Pfizer. J&J &J doesn't do anything as far as we can tell in helping pregnant women. Uh, we're going to do a diabetic project where we look retrospectively at electronic health records and prospectively at patients that we've used the electronic health records to poise before each of the major transition points in diabetes and follow them out over five-year periods of time. And the integration of retrospective and prospective, and then later we'll do uh, clinical manipulations once we learn a lot about the biology and so forth. And, and this is uh, the 100-year lives. The idea of 100 years in this book dramatically missed one major point, and that is the idea of 100 years should be 100 years of health span and not lifespan. And that's a disastrous shortcoming, but they had all sorts of really interesting things that they talked about uh, with regard to retirement education and all of these kinds of things. And our point is, what are you gonna do with these extra 30 years that we plan to give you and have it in the context of health span rather than just expanding lifespan and so forth. Uh, then, um, and focusing on equity, we can recruit people now. We can think about interesting payments with the kind of savings we can generate. How do you build trust? That's the most important thing in, in communities and it's different for different minorities quite clearly. Education, we're really doing a lot of different things. The skepticism of science, how do we get a, across the science deniers? They're probably the most intractable group that we, we in the United States deal with. I don't know that you have anything equivalent to that here. We're doing a whole bunch of educational things and I won't, uh, I'll make these slides available. You can look at them, but, uh, and then finally, um, our vision, and it would be great to share aspects of this with, uh, with uh, you as well, Oxford Martin, uh, is to keep people uh, currently in a state of wellness and to move into your late 90s or even hundreds, um, mentally capable, physically able, uh, a health span of, of that number of years and so forth. Um, 
we think if you look at the five major challenges of contemporary healthcare, it's quality and aging and uh, chronic diseases and, and uh, equity, we, can, we have tremendous solutions for each of those and see very clearly how we can attack those things. So I'll leave you with this question. Are there things that we could work with together uh, to attack these problems, either at the science level or especially at the level of uh, the fourth P, participatory? So almost got done. <laughs> Lee, thank you very much for that uh, wonderful tour de force. And I'm sorry we hurried you a bit to, uh, oh, no. No, uh, towards yeah. the end. Um, we have an online audience. And can I say to the online audience, if you want to ask a question, or if you want to vote on a question that's been asked by someone else, please do. And Claire at the end is going to, uh, is going to harvest some of them. Lee, could I start off with a question? So please. one of the challenges that you put at the end there is cost. And both in your country and our country, even though we've got different models of providing healthcare, we're both uh, facing the same uh, challenges of escalating healthcare costs. If you were to look ahead 50 years, when your mission has been accepted, um, what will be the financial model of your wellness vision of, of future health? Well, let me just give you two examples which will lead to enormous cost savings. So in the US anyway, we spend 86% of our health care dollars on chronic disease. I think in 15 years, we will have eliminated most chronic diseases by this early reversal, which will be infinitely less costly than uh, dealing with the disease. So I think you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars there. A second example is what will automatically come out of the longitudinal phenome analyses is the identification of patients that are responders to a given drug as opposed to those that don't respond. And the statistics in the US are one, we spend more than 600 billion a year on drugs. And two, if you look at the 10 most popular drugs sold in the US, less than 10% of the patients respond to those drugs. So in principle, if we can tell you just who to give the drugs to, we can save 90% of 600 billion. So uh, my feeling is, and that's just the beginning of things that we can talk about, but those are two really big ticket items that that and and I think the ability to assess responders and non-responders will get out that out of the first few years for all the major drugs anyway. That'll be easy. Uh, the transitions to I think we'll get the transitions to major diseases because we'll really focus on those initially much earlier than some of the rarer kinds of things. In the future, in, in the states where I normally buy health insurance or my company would buy it for me, then as part of the package, would, you'd still buy health insurance, but part of that package would be the phenome and, and other monitoring parts. Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, that's really an interesting question. The healthcare systems I'm going for are those that integrate payer with provider. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is 
it's the payers that get this front end saving in spades. Yeah. And unless yeah. they're integrated yeah. with a provider, the provider isn't going to have that much incentive mm -hmm. to do this thing in a classic sense. And what I think we can do with integrated payer providers is drop their costs in such a striking way that other places are going to have to adopt those strategies to move forward. And, you know, there are healthcare systems like Kaiser that have done that kind of thing. Now, Kaiser is a nightmare of bureaucracy in some ways, but you know, I think we'll eventually be able to get through and, and affect them. But we do have smaller healthcare systems that are payer providers. And in fact, part of Providence was payer provider. It's too bad it didn't work out there. But that's the strategy that we're thinking about. We're talking to providers and uh, the first provider we talked to basically said, look, I'm not interested in anything that saves money unless it saves money for me right now. You have to be able to show that. I said, no, it's going to take uh, a few years to get all these things in place. So uh, now I, that was a small um, provider. And I think we can talk with some big ones that, and we haven't yet, that will be more that will have the vision to see there could be enormous savings for themselves. You know, part of the also question that the, the payers are in the states argue with, since we have all these different healthcare systems, is look, as, as a payer, I only have the average patient for three years. So why should I be worried about wellness and optimizing it if I don't get to keep them? And, and, and again, this Guardian Research Network and the 140 hospitals, they're all community hospitals. And what's unique about a community hospital is the patients are sticky. That is, they stay with the same doctor in the same hospital their entire lives. So those are the ideal context in which to operate. And in fact, it's these academic centers that bring a patient in for two or three years and then they or maybe a year only, and then they go off. So I think academic centers are really going to have to rethink some of the things they're doing now. And that's those are the kind of expected, unexpected uh, results that, uh, that come out of all of this. Thank you. I have a question from the audience. Uh, yeah, so Hang on. Uh, yes, if you could just wait for the... Um, oh, yeah, it'd be great if you'd microphone. speak into the microphone. Yeah. Oh, sorry, it was the person in front of you. Oh. <laughs> sorry about that. Thank you. Great talk. Would you um, mind just saying who? Because um, I'm Rahimi. I'm the director of Oxford Martin Deep Medicine Program. Um, and uh, what you just uh, uh, presented resonates very much with our thinking and our work. Um, and my question was actually, it was going in the same direction as what Charles asked, and I think you partly addressed that. I think the business model in this is going to be key, given that in most healthcare systems, um, the payer is not the same as the decision maker, as is not the same who is going to benefit from this. And I think even with integrated healthcare solutions such as Kaiser, there would still be the challenge where the frequency is paid for. I think, as you just described, that is your fourth P and the major challenges for us to think about it. But given that you've answered that question, I take the, the opportunity to just ask the next next question. And 
what I found fascinating about the, the, the project was that it, it is not just about discovery. It is not about coming with new solutions, new it's drugs. It's about returning results to patients. Absolutely. And yeah. that makes them different from all the million-person projects out there. Yeah, but will it have a component of, because, you know, what we have seen before with many of these large-scale products, um, uh, pro programs, ultimately they lead into search for new compounds targeting it a smaller set of population, whereas here it is about saying these are the interventions that we have already available to us, let's say statin, uh, lifestyle interventions, and we primarily focus on the sub-segment of the population that is going to benefit from that most. So it, that is roughly, I think, what I understood is what you're aiming for. And the question in this is what we have seen before is that is almost impossible statistically to just dichotomize saying responder versus non-responder. And in many settings, let's say you brought the example of polygenic risk scores, the challenge that we're facing, that you have to set some sort of a threshold. There's almost no group within that population that would not benefit from it. So we get exactly to the same point about cost benefit. So it becomes the business model. So the two are intertwined. And I was wondering whether you have thought about that and how would you want to address that? Well, you know, one of the things we're doing is taking a really beautiful polygenic score program and attempting to convert those data and translate them into functional networks. And we can do that beautifully by identifying in various ways the genes that they modify and things like that. If you do that, you end up coming with up with very compelling arguments about just uh, what, what it means and what you can do. And a beautiful example of this is we're studying five generations of a family where the more that the three er, uh, uh, earliest generations we have complete genome sequencing on and we've got little phenomic information on. And what we can show, this family has an enormous propensity for Alzheimer's, okay? What we can beautifully dissect is the dominant gene that causes Alzheimer's, APOE4, and its effects from the polygenic scores. And with the distribution of the individual variants and the families within, you can begin to seg segregate out just what individual things are doing and map it to phenotypes of the individual uh, phenomic and or uh, genomic and so forth. So in, in the future, families are going to really be an important part of the million person project because if you're a member of a family, I can give you enormously more about your proclivities for wellness and disease than I can if we take you as an isolated individual. And it's kind of the same as converting single bits of data into networks where the components within a network all confirm that this component here has behaved in the same way as the rest of the network. And you don't have to worry about multiple hypothesis testing, is it real and all those kinds of things. With the systems approach, you can show it's real. And the really important part of that is it reduces enormously the dimensionality of clinical trial numbers that are required to get really compelling data. And this example I gave you of parsing 
for clinical markers that will allow us to segregate diabetes patients poised prior to transitions or to the identification of subtypes and, and convert then into a four or five year clinical trial with four different examples of transitions, something that in the natural history of the disease could take 20 years to do. That, see, it changes the time dimension and it changes the number dimension if you have, have all of these different dimensions. And, you know, classic population geneticists really have a hard time with that. But I have a great slide, but I figured it was too complicated to show here that, you know, kind of illustrates some of those kind of things. And actually, I'm writing a commentary for uh, for nature on that. We'll see if we get that published. But uh, but in COVID, we did unbelievable things with a year and a half, two year clinical trial on 300 patients. We gained enormously deep insights into immune trajectories, disease trajectories, drug trajectories in ways you just couldn't do with conventional clinical trials. No. So. Thanks so much. David, David Sherratt. Uh, I'm a geneticist and biochemist here in Oxford. Um, early in the talk, you talked about the plasticity of young minds and young bodies. So how do you get your views and thoughts into medical schools and medical training? Because that's the crux, no? It, it is the crux. And I'll tell you, if you go to the really good places like Hopkins, and I went to Hopkins three different times about you know, two or three years ago, trying to persuade them, one, to think about adopting this kind of systems view of medicine, but two, trying to think about reformulating medical courses. And the course they need most is precision population genetics. They could, they could learn so much about all these things that we're talking about. And Hopkins totally, look, I went, I was a graduate there. The, you know, they, they love me. They think I'm one of their big successes, but they were totally indifferent to doing anything with me. So I went to uh, Tampa uh, two, three weeks ago and talked with a very young academic medical center there. And I have the Dean so excited that he's agreed to do the one thing I told you about. He's willing to take family practice and bring in the science of wellness. Well, this data-driven approach to things and then the science of wellness and prevention. But he also wants me to help design a medical school course. And we've just finished uh, a textbook that will probably be published in the next uh, year or so called uh, Systems Biology and Systems Medicine. It has some great chapters on what systems medicine is, precision medicine, and what P4 health is, and a lot of the population stuff that we. So that's an ideal kind of book to start. Uh, the students out, but the population health thing, it, it would all be taught by papers because that's all contemporary stuff and there are no textbooks out there for it. So I, I think, you know, the arrogance of excellence is palpable and you have to just move away from the arrogance of excellence and go to good places and, 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 you know, these 
excellent Aragon places may not be excellent all that much longer if they're continuing to be resistant. So we'll see. A good lesson for us all, I think. <laughs> um, I'm going to go to a, um, an online question from Simon Griffin. Um, and Simon points out that trials of provision of genetic and phenotypic risk information and actionable advice has uh, very frequently led to no sustained change in environmentally acute health behavior, such as diet and physical activity. So even though you know what's wrong, it's very hard to get individuals to act on that. I can't argue with that in the slide. That's why the, that's why the participatory is, is so key. And um, I think education of various sorts is the only solution. You, you have to give them a real sense of what they can do. I mean, I mean, I gave a commencement talk down at at uh, at University of Tampa, and you know, you have to do that eight minutes or whatever it is. So I said, the first thing you have to learn is you're responsible for your health. And then I talked about what health was, and it's got these three types. And I said, what's wellness? And and then at the end, I said, what are the things you can do? And, you know, there are lists of things you can do. And there is an infinite list of things you can hope for in the not too distant future. If you're, you know, close to some of the places that will adopt some of these data-driven wellness kinds of opportunities and so forth. And I'll, I'll tell you, I got a really terrific reception from, well, a sub, a small subset that returned it from <laughs> the three or four thousand people out there, but people understood it, and they. But it's one thing to say, "Oh, gee, I really like that." It's another thing to practice it, and and how you change behaviors. You know, I think one of the ways you change behavior is we teach kids in school what this is all about. So we've recently designed. We have six people at ISB that I set up many years ago now that teach K through 12 education and they're utterly superb. And what we've done in the last year and a half is use select teachers and students to create a 20 module course on what systems medicine is all about. And it's for juniors and seniors and health or biology or whatever it is. And it is absolutely a terrific course. And that course would be great for most physicians. Although the kids would probably get it better than most physicians <laughs> would get it. But uh, right. so I think education is really a critical thing. The other thing we're doing now is we've got really a professional film organization in Seattle that we're designing very short vignettes to give you what's a genome, what's a phenome, what's an action, you know, what's a gut micro. Uh, and we want to put together a whole cadre of these things and make them very interesting and accessible to people that may be thinking about taking on programs like this. And they actually can be modified for physicians. I think they'd be tremendously useful for them as well. Okay, we have time for one last question, which is a gentleman at the Hi, back. Hi, uh, John Todd, Director of the Wellcome Centre for Human Genetics here in Oxford. There are uh, effective altruism organisations, non-profit like 80,000 hours, 
that are coaching motivated and caring kids and educating them and, and training them to, to tackle major impactful global problems, uh, including healthcare. Uh, my question was, uh, we have an NHS, 50 million people, uh, second largest workforce to the Chinese army. Um, there's a, a, a new uh, cohort, uh, our future health of 5 million people, a tenth of, of the NHS patients. Why don't you join forces with our future health? Well, as we well talked the with margin? the director of that program and he's agreed. It'd be great for us to join forces. That's exactly why I'm here now. I'm trying to create partnerships that are real. And I think that's spot on. We, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, the question is what we can give them is really obvious. It's partly what can they afford to pay for at this point in time? That's, uh, that's the challenge. But one of the great things, and maybe I already said this, is the 10-year program will really drive down the cost of phenomics by orders of magnitude over the next five to 10 years. And that's just as the first genome project brought the cost of genome sequencing down, you know, 10 to the sixth, 10 to the seventh kind of thing. Okay. I we could go on talking for ages. This is so fascinating. And I'm afraid we have to bring it to a close now. Just before thanking Lee, can I say that our next event here is in uh, nearly two weeks' time uh, on Wednesday, the 8th of June. Uh, Claire Craig, the Provost of Queen's and um, someone who's done a lot of work in science advice to government with Sarah Dillon, will be talking about their book, Storytelling, which is around narrative evidence and policy advice to, to, to government. Um, Lee, I enjoyed your talk immensely, apart from one sentence. And that was the sentence where you said, um, no good ideas come from old institutions. <laughs> and we are proud of our 1,000 year heritage at Oxford, but we clearly need to. Uh... No, no, the only point I'd make is Oxford Martin is really a young institution. Well, that is even better. That has very much cheered me up. Um, please, please join me in thanking Dr. Lee Hood for a really fascinating day. <laughs>